Okay, so let me do a 30 second rewind. Over the past few talks, I've suggested that first of all, Jesus shows us what the Father is like. That's talk number one. And then second of all, he reveals who we're designed to be. That's talk two. Third, we've been included in Christ, so everything that happened to him happened to us. That's talk three. This leads us to the fourth talk, which I talked about last week, that we're empowered to live a resurrection life right now, which is radically different than a pre-resurrection life. That then leads me to the subject of this talk, which is now in that post-resurrection life, expressing the presence of Christ, of God, the fullness of God living and moving through you in this world. Now, all that said, let me show you what I mean, and let me show you from the early church. Acts 11.26, it tells us something that's been commonplace to us, but it would have been shocking in the first century. Here's the verse. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. Okay, let me, let me read it again. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. Now, this verse is somewhat odd. You see, you see the Christians were not named after their leader. You see, they weren't named Jesusans or Jesus followers. Jesus is the name of our Savior. His name means salvation. Christ, though, is his title. It's the Greek equivalent of Messiah, which means anointed one. He's the one set aside by God for the purposes of redemption, and he does so as he walks in great power or or great anointing. Here's what happened. People in that day saw the followers of Jesus carrying the same power that he carried. They taught with power. They gave graciously. They performed miracles. As such, onlookers labeled them for the same anointing their master exhibited. They were named by outsiders, not after his name, but after his anointing. Now, that's really shocking. Just a few chapters after this, we see Paul ministering in Lystra. He heals a man who's been lame from birth. The townspeople, they make an astounding declaration, and they say this in Acts 14.11. The gods have come to us in human form. Now, I used to think that this verse showed the waywardness of the people. However, the idea that Zeus and Mercury had come to them, it was the only plausible explanation those people had. Not because they were so off base, but because they had never seen humans walk in that power and that authority that Paul and Barnabas carried. To them, there was no other explanation. Humans don't carry this degree of spiritual power. Therefore, they must be gods. Now, by the way, but before we get too far into this, let me clarify that your starting point here actually matters. That is, we've got to get certain about what we've discussed in the previous two or three talks about being included so much in the life of Christ and now captured by his resurrection power that we've been made completely, radically, totally new. Here's what I mean. A lot of Bible teachers and pastors, they promote the theory of original sin. I I really alluded to that in the previous talk. Now, what does original sin mean? Well, it means a few things. Uh, Here's three. Number one, it means that people are born innately bad. Number two, it means that when a child is born, there's some sort of debit in the redeemed, unredeemed balance sheet that needs to be corrected. Number three, it means that each new baby that arrives, regardless of how cute they look in their pink or blue, is really hiding a thick cloak of darkness. Ever heard anything like that before? You probably have. It's one of the predominant teachings floating through the church today. Now, it's obvious that people who ascribe to that worldview, they begin their theology with Genesis 3, after the fall. If you begin there, your theology will focus on things like Satan, 
instead of a savior, sin instead of salvation, problems instead of potential, fear instead of freedom, the image of Adam, that's the first man, instead of the image of Jesus, that's the last Adam and the second man that we discussed in the previous talk. That, that one's important. That idea of the image of Jesus instead of the image of Adam. You see, the starting line of the human race has this sentence that says something like this, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. That's Genesis 1:27. We were originally designed in what is called the Imago Dei. That, that is the image of God. So, uh, you know, really a big question here. Should we begin building our theology from Genesis 1? Or should we start building with Genesis 3? Should we begin with the creation in the image of God? Or should we start with the fall? If all, all scriptures inspired, it makes no sense to skip those first two chapters, does it? Now, let me tell you where I stand on this. My theological construct, it begins with the image of God, not the fall. Now, now I know the counter-argument to beginning in Genesis 1 is, you know, people say, like, just a few chapters later, people mess it up. They sin, and that's where we are now. But I, but I would say, no, 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 no. Jesus died and rose from the grave 2,000 years ago. Now he sits at the right hand of the Father, according to Ephesians 1.20. We're not living in the area of the fall. We're living in the era under the authority of Jesus. Okay, and, and by the way, remember, we've been included in every aspect of his redemptive work, everything from his life of obedience to his death, to his burial, to his resurrection, to his ascension. We talked about that, I think it was uh, two talks ago in that number three included in Christ discussion. Okay, furthermore, you just kind of flesh it out. The Bible tells us that Jesus was slain from before the foundation of the world. Revelation 13.8 says that. 1 Peter 1.20 says that. The cross then wasn't a last-ditch effort or a quick fix to something that got jinxed. The cross was the plan before Adam ever arrived. So I would say, like, even if you want to argue that the fall wiped out the entire Imago Day in humanity in Genesis 3, you still got to contend with Paul's assertion that Jesus is the last Adam, he's the second man, he came, he resolved it, and that was part of the plan that when people stumble, there was already this massive cosmic safety net in place. And then there's this, like, think about this really hard. What issue is so big that the cross didn't permanently resolve it? Or which sin, out of all the list of the possibilities, which one is unforgivable? Or what, if anything, can people do to render themselves unredeemable and unusable by God? You see, there, there's none of those. And Galatians 4.19 speaks of Christ being formed in us. Paul, Paul likens that with that terminology to childbirth, to something happening small inside of us and then coming forth in this powerfully visible way. He, he actually writes, here's the whole verse, my little children for whom I labor in birth again until Christ is formed of you. He speaks of giving birth uh, to Christ in them. And that fits with the images that we've seen of something new coming to life in the previous discussions. Okay, Paul's goal was for the people that he led to become fully developed in Christ. In, in other verses, uh, he expressed his desire to present people, and here's some of the words he uses, perfect uh, or whole 
uh, complete, mature. He didn't want them to remain infants. He desired for them to be birthed and then to grow into their complete maturation, their complete adulthood in them. Or to say it another way, he didn't want them to live as Simon. If you remember the talk number two that we discussed, Jesus reveals who we are, and we saw that in the dynamic with uh, Simon who became Peter, but he was called out as Peter even when he was Simon. Paul didn't want his Uh, He didn't want the people in his churches to live as Simon. He wanted them to live like Peter. He didn't want, here's another way to say it, sand Christians. He wanted rocks. He wanted people to encounter them and then to conclude that what was happening was humanly impossible so that it had to be the very presence of God within. Even if they were theologically off the mark in Lystra then when they thought Paul and Zeus were uh, they they well they thought Paul was Mercury because he was the messenger guide and they thought uh, that Barnabas was Zeus who was kind of the quiet stand behind in charge guide okay even if they're off the mark like Paul desperately yearned for people to encounter God and that kind of way through his people such that it was supernatural it was powerful and that requires a group of believers living the full expression of what it means to be completely included in Christ. So, there's this verse, Colossians 1.28. Paul says this, he writes, Him we preach, so Jesus we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ. I, I like that word right there, perfect. Perfect in Christ. Because the word perfect is the Greek word teleos. It doesn't mean without flaw. Like we think of in English, perfect means flawless. In Greek, that word teleos, it means reaching full potential. So Paul, he longed for his disciples to live the complete revelation of Christ in them. That was his goal. If you think back through some of the images, some of the graphics that I've used in the show notes, I'm going to put another one in. There's one that I built up in talk number three where I talked about crucified, died, buried, arose, ascended, that total inclusion included in the life of Christ. That's what I'm going to put it in the show notes here where you can kind of look at it. That's everything that's there that is reaching full potential. It's to live every facet of that. Okay, so in Galatians 2.20, we're going to come back to it. Paul communicates this idea in another passage. He, he writes this, very common scripture. You, you've heard it before, most likely. Let, let me put some spin on it. I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, so the life I now live in my body, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Uh, Two points that I want to emphasize here. Number one, first, this first speaks of Christ actually living the life that we now live. Like So we're included in him, and he's wrapped up and included in us. Remember the fullness of Christ? God dwelled the fullness in him, and then now Christ's fullness dwells in us. So we've been included in his crucifixion, death, burial, resurrection, ascension. He's included in us where the life that we now live, he's so included and entwined in it that he now expresses himself through us. And awakening to the reality that the Lord wants to express himself through us is essential. When we, when we, when we rise, again, crucifixion, death, burial, you're risen— we emerge with the resurrected life, that kanos life we discussed previous talk. 
the same power that raised Christ from the dead now lives in you. That's what Romans 8.11 says verbatim. Second observation. The depth of Christ's work in us, it's far more deeper and far more penetrating than we realize. Uh, I, qu- I quoted the King James Version of the Bible here just a moment ago because it really gets to the nuance of the faith issue in a really more accurate, kind of beneath-the-surface view. Okay, N- Notice this. I'm, I'm going to read it again. It's not faith in the Son of God that causes us to live. It's the faith of the Son of God. Okay, so the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. In other words, Christ occupies us so much that even the faith we exhibit is his. Uh, In in his book, The Happy Gospel, a writer by the name of Benjamin Dunn, he quotes the distilled Bible. That's a different translation for Galatians 2.20. And it says this, I consider myself as having died, and now I'm enjoying a second existence, which is simply Jesus using my body. That translation, okay, not completely accurate, because you still live, you still show up, you still have a mind and emotions. But I I love the translation because it helps us explore more of what that resurrected life should be. Okay, Think about it. Christ now lives your life. He uses your body, which becomes a vehicle for him to express himself. And he does this in multiple ways. In fact, what I'm going to say is I'm going to outline here four ways this happens. Okay, so what does it look like? Here's the question for Christ to express himself through you. Four generalities. Four. Number one, we have the mind of Christ. 1 Corinthians 2.16, it asks a very specific question, and then it provides a definitive answer. Paul writes this, Who can know the Lord's thoughts? Who knows enough to teach him? But we understand these things, for we have the mind of Christ. In other words, that means this. When you're seeking the Lord, you actually can think his thoughts. You know, you think about desires and dreams and what you're going to do with your life. And you know, when you're pursuing the Lord, when you're, when you're in a place where your will surrendered, and you've set your heart before him, that he's going to speak to you clearly, even in the thoughts that you think. Uh, here's idea number two. We've been given his spirit. 1 Corinthians 2.12, it reminds us this, what we've received is not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God. I'm, I'm just quoting, okay? What we've received is not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given us. Here's... A thing I hear so often is people say, I feel like my prayers are hitting the ceiling. You don't need to worry about that because, here's here's why. Uh, The Father is right where you are. Like There's no separation between God and you. So it's not like your prayers have to make it up above the ceiling, up above your house to get to some far distant place in heaven. You know, that verse, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. He's near. 1 Corinthians 6, 17 tells us that, quote, whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. That's the New International Version. That connection here, it's the same connection we read of the Godhead, that God is, in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 6, 4, God is one. It's the same expression used of the connection to describe marriage in Genesis 2.24 that uh, Jesus quotes in Matthew 19.6, that uh, husband and wife 
one. It is an unbreakable spiritual supernatural, can't explain, transcends legality, union. That's what you have with God and his spirit. Okay, so number one, we have the mind of Christ. Number two, we've been given a spirit. Number three, we have his desires coupled with his ability to do the will of the Father. Uh, let me break that down. In Philippians 2.13, we read that God is working in us both, get this, this is a quote, both to will and to do his good work. Now, notice both aspects of that transformative power that are inside of us. Number one, will. God changes our desires so that we desire to do his work. He's changed what we actually crave, what we actually hunger for, and then two, our ability to do it. God empowers us to actually perform the very deeds that he's placed in front of us. Um, Number four then, so one, we have the mind of Christ. Two, we've been given a spirit. Three, we have his desires coupled with his ability to do the will of the Father. Number four, here's the final observation. We will do greater things than he did. Now, in John 14, 12, Jesus says, Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these he will do, because I go to my Father. Now, here, what I want to say is not only will we do the same things Jesus did, which includes his words, his teaching, his miracles and deeds, and how he responded to and loved people and embodied grace, we will even do greater things. And, and notice, too, like right here, Jesus is not saying that the church will collectively do greater things. He says that the person who believes in him will do greater things, like that that you. So put, put the pieces together, just kind of a review of how we express the presence of Christ in the world. Again, because Paul said, crucifies with Christ. Now the life I live, the resurrection life, is him expressing himself through me. Here, here it is, four points. Number one. We have the mind of Christ, such that we think his thoughts. Number two, we've been given the presence of his spirit, such that we are always completely united with him. Number three, our desires are aligned with his, and we have the ability, the capacity to do his will. Number four, more than that, we've been empowered to not just do his will, but to even do greater things than Jesus did. When we live from those resources and move from the resources that God supplies to us. Um, here's what it actually means. It, it means that for us to live, like our, our lives, daily lives, is to manifest his presence to those around us. It means we carry him wherever we go. That, that means our regular routines, our daily lives, the schedules and meetings and interactions and carpools and coffee shops and every other thing you do are filled, loaded, with the sacred. And it means when we speak or when we serve, when it's intentional or when it's not, or when it's a big moment or a small moment, it will be as if God is doing it through us. Now, listen to this verse, 1 Peter 4, 11. If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers or anyone serves, let him do it with the ability which God supplies, that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Uh, When we share the message of grace, when we're talking to other people about what's happening in our lives and how grace and faith is intersecting at the crossroads of daily life, God himself, get this, pleads through us, beckoning and calling other people to himself. 
2 Corinthians 5, 19 and 20, it says, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them. This, this is the quote. And he's committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were pleading through us, pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf to be reconciled to God. Paul writes in another passage, 2 Corinthians 4.10, and says that we are always, it's meaning everywhere we go, I'm quoting him again, always caring about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifest in our body. Get that, always. There, there's never a moment when you or I cease carrying his life in us. And, and that's why maybe 1 Corinthians 15.10, another verse here, Paul says, By the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. And, and I love the tension that's right here. He says, I labored more abundantly than they all. Talking about other workers in the church. I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was in me. So you notice this, Paul showed up, he worked hard, yet it was not Paul working, Christ was working through him. There's uh, another verse that communicates this dynamic of Christ living in us. And this is one of my favorite. It's in John 1.16. And there you read this. Uh, I'm going to read it in, in the English. I mean, that's the only way I would read it on a podcast, right? But, but it's going to sound redundant. C- catch this. Uh, New King James Version. And of his fullness, we have all received and grace for grace. Did you catch the end? Of his fullness we've all received. Now, get this. And grace for grace. That, in English, seems a bit odd because that New King James Version, it tells us that we have exchanged one grace for another. We, we've received grace for grace. That All the English translations say that. I've looked at different translations of the Bible because sometimes they all bring out maybe this different subtle nuance that adds this depth. But they all say that. We received one kind of grace for grace. So I always skipped over it, not thinking much about it, not digging deep into it, because on the surface it sounds clever, cute, but not substantive. Here's the deal, though. If you go back to the original Greek, you discover there are two different words, two different words used for grace in that passage. Most English translations, they're not sure what to do with them. And if they did, because of what I'm going to describe here, it would be cumbersome to do it anyway, um, because those words are really very similar. The two words are this, karin and karitos. Okay, the root for each of grace is charis. Charis. So the two words, karin and karitos. Here's what John actually writes. Of his fullness we've all received, and karin for karitos. Okay, so I've got this... I'm going to put it in the show notes. It's an a interlinear Bible. It's the New Testament, largely in Greek. Interlinear means it provides the Greek words and then a line of the literal English translation. So uh, when I put the Greek words there, karin, it's it's going to be karin anti, uh, which in the Greek language is for, meaning that uh, one thing has taken place of another. Like we've exchanged this for that. So it's not just... Um, we've received grace for grace. It's we've exchanged grace for grace. We've exchanged, we've replaced, okay? Or we've got this instead of that. So here's here's what the words really mean, and then we're going to put this together. The difference. 
Karatos, that's the third word, okay? Karin for Karatos. Karatos, the third word, it's what you had. It's what you've traded off. It's what you, I mean, you still have it, but it's, it's, it's not the pinnacle. It means favor. John tells us that we were liked by God. He had a pleasant disposition towards us. That, now, that smacks against a lot of what you probably heard before about God being so angry. And, okay, Karatos is favor. You had favor. Karin, the first word, it's what we've received. It, it means this. It's the divine, animating, life-giving presence. It's the very life of God in us. The Bible tells us that you have received Karin. You've received the divine, animating, life-giving presence of God instead of just favor. In other words, you had favor. That's, that's a great message. That, that's the very message of grace of the gospel. But the Bible goes farther. Now you have the divine, animating, life-giving presence of God pushing, moving, blowing, expressing himself through you. So the reality is now this. When people encounter you, they actually come in contact with everything of the kingdom. I mean, you think back to the pictures that I've been showing you like in the show notes, like which I'd encourage you just to go get, yank them, pull them, print them. Uh, talk number one, I drew this arrow from Jesus to the Father, highlighting that he reveals the Father. Um, and, and then I had that one of the mirror image where I had an arrow from Jesus to us showing us that he doesn't just show us what the Father's like. He actually shows us what we're like. Okay, and, and then uh, I, I made some more observations here, um, and, and I'm doing it here with this one right here. Um, adding this arrow that says somehow this, that Jesus sends us into the world. That like John 20, 21 says this, um, in the same way, and just look, you'll, you'll see it in the show notes, in the same way that the Father sent him, um, he sends you. In fact, John 20, 21, let me just read it. As the Father sent me, so I send you. This doesn't just mean that the Father sent Jesus, and so Jesus is sending us. Rather, it means this. It means he is sending us in the same manner, in the same way, with the same empowerment that the Father sent him. So, you remember that the fullness of the deity dwelled, lived, occupied, consumed Jesus, Colossians 1.19. And now Jesus is in us, Colossians 1.27. He fills us with this fullness. And, and that's not an isolated theme in Scripture. I mean, there are verses all throughout the New Testament that say the same thing, like Colossians 1.27 that says, Christ in you is your hope of glory. Or, or Galatians 2.20 that we just read, it moments ago, it says that you've been crucified with Christ and now the life you live in your body is actually lived by Christ. Uh, or Philippians 1.21 says that to live is Christ. I mean, it's not about Christ, nor is it just for Christ, for you to live. Actually, it is. It is the equivalent of Christ. Uh, Colossians 129, you know, Paul talks about working, yet Christ working powerfully through him. Uh, 2 Corinthians 13, 4 reminds us that we live now by the very power of God. Ephesians 3.20 says that um, whatever uh, he does... Uh, he does according to the power that he has in us. Uh, and then Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 says that God has created good works and planned them ahead of time for us. We simply show up and walk in what he's already 
destined. Uh, one pastor that I read, uh, Pastor Mooney is, is his name. He has this book called Look, the Finished Work of Jesus. He actually says that the reality is that Jesus died not only for the forgiveness of our sins, he also died to establish a brand new covenant in which we could live. And in this covenant, there's not only the forgiveness of sin, but there is a new life. That's an amazing quote, isn't it? And, and I would just add that life, it's the very life of Jesus in you. Okay, it's easy to see then, uh, if that's true, that we can become an encounter, a connector to the presence and power of Christ and all of the Father's kingdom. I mean, I mean, you know, and if you start seeing like the reality of what Jesus is doing through you, you think, how how could you not with everything he's resourced, right? So again, first, Jesus sends us into the world. And because of that, now we reveal him to the world. Okay, so we show them what God is like because we show them what Jesus is like. Um, interesting verse, First John one seven. We're told to walk in the light as He is light. He is light, and we and we read that multiple times in the New Testament. Jesus is light. John one seven um, says that, like not just First John one seven, but actually the Gospel of John one says that in verse seven. Same verse um, number. Jesus said it of himself in John 8, 12. He says, I am the light of the world. When we walk in the light, though, we're not just walking in road obedience to legalistic commands. We're walking in relationship with the person, the very one who embodies truth in the flesh. Okay, in John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way I am the truth. I am the life. But but I want you to notice this. Like in that embodiment of life and truth and everything else, we not only read that Jesus is light, we read that you are light. Ephesians 5.8. It actually says that. Paul wrote that, but years before that, Jesus had actually said it himself in Matthew 5.14. He said, you are the light of the world. Here's Maybe as I land the plane on this talk, here's what I'm driving at. To encounter you is to encounter him because you've been so radically included in Christ. The old you gone, a new self resurrected. Not neos as we discussed previously, but kanos. So radically new that now the risen Jesus now lives in us, through us, expressing himself through us in the world with the thoughts we think, with the spirit that is one with us, with the ability to know and to do his will, being completely joined to him. Do you see? As we sign off, my prayer is this. May the Lord bless you. May the Lord keep you. May the Lord be gracious to you and shine his face of favor on you. May you see, may you sense and feel the nearness of the fullness of God, of the deity, not just filling Jesus and showing you what the Father is like, but also filling you and revealing to you the complete essence of who you are so that as you move through this world doing the highs, and doing the lows and doing the things that you so look forward to and also doing the grind and the nitty gritty that you do every single day. May you feel the fullness of God expressing himself through you so that you give people an image of what God is actually like. Grace, peace, shalom.